Welcome to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me for interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. This week, we have a unique and exciting opportunity as we focus on the Connected Health Conference here in Boston. Partners Connected Health is honored to be the organizing partner for this world-class event, and I am proud to serve as program chair. We're thrilled to share a mini-series of podcast episodes featuring luminaries from our program. In an era when digital technologies enable individuals to track health statistics such as daily activity and vital signs, and new applications of artificial intelligence, social robots and vocal biomarkers are creating new opportunities for health, we're now facing the next great challenge, integrating these technologies in healthcare delivery, wellness, and daily living. I can think of no one better suited to address how we bridge the gap between technology and humans than Roz Picard. Roz is founder and director of the Effective Computing Research Group at MIT Media Lab, co-founder and chief scientist at Empatica, selling the first smartwatch approved by the FDA in neurology, and co-founder of Affectiva, providing artificial intelligence to analyze and communicate human emotion. Roz is known internationally for her book, Affective Computing, which helped launch the growing field by that name. She is an active inventor with over a dozen patents and has consulted for companies including Apple, iRobot, Merck, and Samsung. And her lab's achievements have been featured in forums such as the New York Times, the London Independent, National Public Radio, New Scientist, ABC's World News Tonight, Wired, Time, and Vogue. Roz's MIT lab invents emotionally smart AI technologies in service of better human health and well-being. And so, in the context of our recent Connected Health Conference, I'm delighted to talk with Roz today and have her share her insights and vision with our audience. So, welcome to the podcast, Roz. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure to be here with you. So, you've been credited with starting the branch of computer science known as Effective Computing. With the publication of your book in 1997 by the same name, you describe the importance of emotion and intelligence, the vital role human emotion communication has to relationships between people, and the possible effects of emotion recognition by robots and wearable computers. Groundbreaking work with important implications in healthcare and central to the theme of this year's Connected Health Conference, which focused on balancing technology and the human element. Please tell us more about the need to monitor emotion cues and how we can make computers be intelligent and have the ability to interact naturally with humans. Uh, thanks, thanks, Joe. It's such an important area. It's, it's funny, when we were starting out, people thought of emotion as something superficial and undesirable and better left out of anything uh, that we were designing to be an intelligent interaction. But I, I think people in your field, in particular in medicine, understand just how vital it is to pay attention to a patient's feelings or a customer's emotions. We know if the customer is happy, if the patient is 
handling their stress and their emotion well, that they're probably able to handle other things well too. And if there's something nagging at you, something annoying, something irritating or stressful, that it's really important to pay attention to that and try to uh, figure out what it is that's causing it and then uh, debug that. And then a person is usually very capable of solving their own problems or getting past the problem to a behavior change or a solution that makes everything go smoother. So I I think actually in medicine, people have uh, some of the greatest emotional intelligence and empathy and care and smarts. And, you know, sometimes just caring for somebody uh, and managing those feelings well makes a huge difference in a person's health and in their outcomes. That's that's uh, wonderful to hear. And I, I think that's largely true, although I chastise my colleagues often for forgetting about the emotional intelligent component. Uh, sometimes we become too, frankly, robotic in our care delivery. Uh, but I, I think you're, you're quite right that we, as a profession, generally, we, we get it more than others do. The question, though, is, is really how much can we delegate that to computers? These days, there's so much attention to uh, delegating things like uh, data collection and analysis and even prediction to computers. Can we delegate emotions to computers? Is that possible? We, we can definitely give computers more emotional intelligence. For, for example, if a computer is asking you for information about your symptoms, it's been shown that a lot of people are more comfortable discussing you know, intimate or, or kind of embarrassing information with a computer than with trained psychiatrists. And if the computer can appear uh, caring and non-judgmental, then those things help a person to disclose more of that, uh, that data. Uh, it's also the case that a computer, whether it's a software agent or just a chatbot, if it just uses language that involves a little bit of empathy, like if, if it asks you how you're doing and you say you're not doing well, and it just goes on to the next question, that feels uncaring. But if it stops and acknowledges as, you know, sorry to hear, or, uh, you know, do you want to, you know, sorry to hear, are you willing to tell me more? You know, those kinds of very respectful uh, wordings that are empathetic and underneath, you know, denote somebody caring in the wording of them. uh, Those make a difference in people wanting to keep using that system in feeling less frustrated and in uh, feeling cared for and wanting to come back and and uh, keep dialoguing. Really interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of I think Tim Bickmore was one of your students, as I recall, our graduate. Yes. Yeah, and so I, we we've exactly. collaborated with him yeah. over the years, and he's 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 used a lot of that uh, in his work. Yep, yep. This came right out of uh, our work with emotional intelligence, and Tim has done a fabulous job building what are called relational agents, where they think not just about the emotions of the moment, but your emotions over time and your relationship over time. Because emotion is always a part of an intelligence system. It's not the only thing, right? If a computer is just acting emotional, well, you know, I don't think any of us want that. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have enough uh, trouble with our own emotional human beings. Right, right. <laughs> um, I'm going to turn, turn to something a little more serious that I know you're passionate about and, and our listeners would love to hear more about, about that story, which is your, your passion in, in autism. And, and I know that 
I don't remember exactly whether Affectiva was born out of that passion, but I know Empatica was born out of a, a passion to uh, to translate some of this work directly into care delivery. So the work in uh, your work has expanded autism research and the development of devices that could help humans recognize nuances in human emotions. Uh, tell us about your vision for technologies that have emotional, social intelligence. And, and again, use some disease examples uh, for us and some of the learnings you've had. Sure. We, you know, it's interesting. In the early days of AI, we all wanted to build the most amazing intelligent computer and see as Marvin Minsky, one of the founding parents of the field, used to say, see if we could build something that was so incredibly intelligent uh, that it would be that we would feel lucky if it kept us around as a household pet. And that AI, that AI taking over the world, that super smart, social, emotional, intelligent, all kinds of intelligent uh, system is actually something we really aren't focused on building now and, mm -hmm. and would like people to stop and think about maybe not building what we want to build is smart social emotional technology that improves human lives. And there's a, there's several slight differences on that. And as we were trying to build computers that were better at measuring and understanding human emotion, one day a young man knocked on my door and said, uh, you know, I hear you're developing technology to help people understand emotion. Could you help my brother? And I said, well, tell me about your brother. And he told me about his brother's autism. And as we started to uh, learn more about this, we did something that we always do in developing technology. We go to the people who might be the future users first before we design for them. And we learn what they really want. And many people did want technology that helped them, say, read somebody else's facial expression in the middle of a conversation. They often you know, were having so much trouble understanding the words being spoken and the meaning between the lines that they couldn't simultaneously concentrate on what one person described as like an ocean wave of different pieces of information coming off the face, each ocean wave different than the one before. And when you are bombarded with you know, a space of 10,000 facial combinations of movements and language and tone of voice, it's overwhelming if you have to cognitively process all of that. It's hard for computers to do. Uh, so people asked us for a device that could help them do that. And we started um, building facial affect reading technology that was wearable. And today that is uh, beautifully improved upon by Affectiva. And they have SDKs and free demos you can download on your phone if you search for AFDEXME, A-F-F-D-E-X-M-E on either an iOS or Android device. Uh, you can download that and play with the facial affect reading. And now that is embedded in a bunch of products that people with autism use to, and also people without autism use, uh, just if they have, a lot of people have difficulty reading other people's faces. And it can teach you about reading the facial expressions and also about making the facial expressions, mm -hmm. <laughs> since some people don't make, uh, you know, they have pretty flat affect also. Um, also, many companies now use that in products to understand their customers, because essentially the technology we built uh, is, you know, is unable to to read emotional cues unless we deliberately equip it to do so. And it, you know, is um, it's rendering a lot of us face blind and non-verbally 
blind uh, in interacting with each other. Like right now, I can't see if my talking is boring you or not because I can't see your face. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Well, that's and uh, there's a whole generation of people who live on text messaging, right? And so what? Uh, yeah, you know how yeah. they're how they're coping with this by emojis and and different. Uh, I'm reminded constantly that if I put a period at the end of my message, it means I'm angry. So that's that's where we are oh, with dear. that. <laughs> All caps, definitely. Yeah, yeah there you yeah. go. Uh, and then to another thing, when we were working with the kids with autism, um, in their wonderfully honest way, one actually one young adult came to me and said, "Raz." I know you work on emotion, but you've really got it all wrong. And I'm like, great, you have my attention. You know, what have, what have I done now? And she says, you know, my biggest problem is actually not reading other people's faces or emotions. She said, my biggest problem is you're not reading my emotions. And I thought, oh, great. You know, I felt about one inch tall. And, you know, what, what is it that I'm not reading? What, you know, I mean, I know I have room to improve, but like, how did I botch this so badly? And she said, well, it's not just you. It's everybody's not reading my emotions. Great. You know, now, you know, Mm -hmm. what are we all doing wrong? And she said, you're not reading my stress properly. I'm experiencing enormous anxiety and stress and you guys are missing it. And I thought, wow, you know, she's right. She looks calm. And I thought of how many times the kids with autism, people described them as looking perfectly calm. And then they'd say, all of a sudden there was this meltdown and it came from nowhere. You know, he's laying on the floor looking like a lazy bum and suddenly he's injuring himself or people around him and he gets kicked out of school. And I thought, wow, it's, you know, is it really a step function, right? You're calm and then snap, or is it a gradual buildup and we're just not missing it? And so I realized we had built technology in the lab to measure autonomic changes in emotion. And the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight response, was something that we could now measure non-invasively from the surface of the skin with small electrical changes in the surface of the skin. And we could do this with a wristband or an ankle band that we had built in our lab. So we started to... uh, modify the technology so that it could collect the data very non-invasively and comfortably from kids at school, from kids going through physical therapy. And we collaborated with people who were concerned about these meltdowns coming out of the blue and concerned about the stress that people said that they were experiencing, but people around them were not seeing. And as we uh, refined ways to measure this, we realized that we were able to pick up a lot of really interesting stress-related data, which uh, we were all set to try to turn into something that would allow lots of people to do this at scale when we had a very surprising finding that completely uh, derailed all of this and sent me off on a a whole other line (laughs) of investigation. (laughs) I think you know what that is. I do, and and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. I just... I, and I've heard you, we, we've had you speak at, at our conference before, I've heard you in other venues. And the way these stories, uh, it's, it's a great example of necessity being the mother of invention, literally, because you, you come up with these insights when you listen to people and then the whole products and companies emerge from it. It's just, uh, it's very inspiring to hear those stories and to hear how, you, how you've uh, changed the world, really, in your work. Uh, so let's talk about Empatica. I know that came about from a, a, an interesting story uh, as well. 
I have two kinds of questions about Empatica. So the first is, it, it, please ha- tell our listeners that wonderful story about how it was launched and, and uh, the insight that you gained from one of your, uh, I believe it was some a student's brother, uh, but, but I'll let you tell that story. And then the second part, which we'll get to, is going to be more about how that, and, and I use your uh, product, I, I share uh, the Empatica product in a lot of my speeches because it's an example of an Internet of Things technology that gives you insight rather than just a number. And I want to talk a little bit more about that movement in the sensor industry, but we'll save that for the second question. So tell us about uh, the insights that led to the founding of Empatica and, and how that's going. Uh, sure. Yeah, it was December, end of the semester at MIT. And one of the undergrads in my lab knocked on my door and said, Professor Picard, could I borrow one of your sweatband sensors for my little brother with autism? He can't talk. And I want to see uh, what's stressing him out. Could I borrow it over the break? And back then they were hand built. They had a lot of, you know, hand wired things in them. So I said, don't just take one, take, take two. And do you need a soldering iron? And he said, uh, no, he says, I have a soldering iron. I said, good, you know, they break frequently. So, um, I knew he could fix it. And as he, so he took two bands, I thought he would use one and then the second, but he put them both on the wrists of his little brother. And I was back at MIT looking at the data on my laptop and I saw the two streams of data, which were low, indicating low skin conductance, which is typically associated with a pretty calm state. And the first day was pretty low, and the second day was pretty low. And I thought, okay, here's a kid with severe autism, but he looks pretty chill. And I look ahead, and the next day, the um, skin conductance on one wrist stayed low, but the other wrist went so high at one point that I thought the sensor must be broken. It was the biggest peak I'd ever seen. And I have seen a lot of big stressed out peaks because <laughs> we measure people, Boston drive stress, we measure MIT qualifying exams, we <laughs> do obnoxious sensory stimuli in people's ears, we've done pain studies, uh, we've done a lot of work. And this signal, we know a lot about it, and this was not at all normal. Uh, and so I thought the sensor must be broken. And I'm an electrical engineer by training, so I did a bunch of work back in the lab trying to figure out what the heck could be causing this problem. And I could not figure out how to reproduce it. So I, uh, I debugged in a way I was very uncomfortable doing. I'd never done before. I picked up the telephone and called a student at home <laughs> on vacation. And I asked him, do you have any idea? Well, first, I tried to be empathetic. How's your Christmas? How's your little brother? Uh, you know, how's everybody doing? Um, you know, and then, then I said, hey, what? Uh, what happened at this date and time? Do you have any idea? And he said, I'll, I don't know, but I'll check the diary. And I held my breath and said a little prayer, like, what are the odds he's going to have written this down, really? Uh, well, he comes back. He has written down exactly what happened. And he said that that funny event in the data was 20 minutes before a grand mal seizure. Now, I didn't know it, the boy had seizures. I didn't know anything about seizures. So I started doing some uh, quick learning on that. And then I realized another student's dad was chief of neurosurgery over at Children's Hospital Boston. Uh, so I screwed up my courage and called Dr. Joe Madsen at 
Children's Hospital, uh, said, hi, Dr. Madsen, this is Rosalind Picard. Do you know if it's possible that somebody could have a huge sympathetic nervous system surge 20 minutes before a seizure? And he said, uh, probably not. But he said, you know, it's interesting. We've had people whose hair stands on in on one arm 20 minutes before a seizure. And I was like, on one arm? Yeah, I hadn't actually wanted to tell him it was just on one side because I thought that was just way too weird. You know, we thought skin conductance at the time was just a generalized arousal, generalized sweating. You know, if you measure it on your left wrist, it's the same as your right wrist. Left palm, same as right palm. What, what difference should it make if it's just generalized stress? So how on earth could it be happening on just one, one wrist and not the other? And Joe explained that... Um, there could be activation deep in the brain on one region that could cause this. And he got extremely interested. And long story short, we made a whole bunch more devices, got them safety certified. Uh, Joe was doing a study with uh, 90 children who were all candidates for brain surgery because of seizures that were not being uh, controlled by medicine. And so we added to their gold standard measures in the epilepsy monitoring unit. We added uh, EDA, two-sided, on the two wrists. And he was simultaneously measuring EEG on the scalp and uh, ECG on the chest. And the patients were being videotaped. Gold standard epilepsy monitoring unit processes, but now adding EDA. Well, we found in 100% of the grand mal seizures, there was a significant skin conductance response, uh, more than two standard deviations above the pre-seizure period that occurred with uh, each of those um, generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Now, we did not find that it was usually 20 minutes in advance. When we had the, um, for the first 16 seizures we had with the gold standard timing and synchronization, the skin conductance response happened at the same time as the first brain activity. Uh, It's possible that um, it can happen before an EEG shows the activity. Sometimes the EEG also doesn't show seizure activity and the skin conductance can pick it up. Uh, But generally speaking, we cannot claim forecasting now. However, we learned that the electrodermal activity plus the movement in these cases gave a much more accurate, a more sensitive and specific seizure detector than just a shake detector. And we also learned that the big response we were getting on the wrist was not just generalized sweating due to, you know, you're convulsing or the room gets hot or you're... um, you know, more active in some other way or more um, fearful. It turns out that it was uh, related to a very unusual thing in the brain where uh, a very unusual biomarker that's been observed in 100% of the cases of SUDEP. Now, you have a super intelligent, educated audience listening to this right now, and I still bet that a lot of them haven't heard of SUDEP, even though it takes uh, more years of potential life loss than any neurological disorder other than stroke. So more than Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, meningitis, encephalitis, uh, and Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, SUDEP is number two after stroke. And what it is, is when a person with epilepsy uh, is found uh, dead and they can't in an autopsy attribute to anything else, not Mm. to heart, uh, not to an accident, not to drowning, not to any other cause. Uh, And it's the number one cause of death in epilepsy, and again, the number two of years of potential life loss of all neurological disorders. Mm-hmm. And also, it's believed to be significantly underreported. So, 
what what's going on here is SUDEP is uh, when it's when per- person happens to be monitored and they pass away uh, while having epilepsy. What's been noticed is in most cases they have a grand mal seizure. Afterwards, it looks like they're fine. The seizure has ended, and then somehow in the minutes afterwards, something is happening deep in the brain that is causing cortical shutdown. So the EEG goes flat. So it looks like they're not having a seizure, they're not having any normal brain activity. And the longer that flattening happens, the more likely it is to evolve into a SUDEP. Mm. And the um, what you see after that flattening is the respiration turns off, and then sometime after that, the heart stops. Mm. Uh, what we also saw with the wristband is that whether or not the person dies, if there is that flattening, we get a bigger skin conductive response. And the longer that brain EEG flattening is happening, the bigger our skin conductance response. So it becomes like a so sensor becomes, for, for this uh, yes, uh, phenomenon. Yeah, like a biomarker. Yeah, for, that's yeah. really and interesting. What's bizarre is who would have ever predicted that when it looks like the brain is shutting down, we're getting a bigger signal mm-hmm. on the wrist. Yeah. So what we learned talking to Ed Boyden and um, experts about uh that cortical shutdown is you can super activate like hyperstimulate a region deep in the brain uh, that can cause that cortex to shut down. And what we find is in particular, some of the temporal lobe stimulation, the amygdala, the hippocampus, that causes a huge lateralized skin conductance response. So even though those brain regions that are core in emotion and in a lot of very dangerous seizures, and they can also take your breath away, literally stimulate the amygdala, the person can stop breathing. Um, when those are stimulated, you may not see any brain activity on the scalp, but you see a big uh, signal on the wrist. Really interesting. Well, it's it's a amazing story, and again, that the 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 uh, society owes you personally a debt of gratitude because you're doing this amazing, important work. Well, it, it's been a huge team effort. I cannot take credit for building um, Empaticus Embrace that came out of this. They yeah. took our original sensors, improved upon them significantly. Uh, we've done. We've had partners in, you know, over a dozen hospitals collecting data. You know, the patients, the researchers in the hospitals. So many people have helped collect gold standard data, and build improved machine learning algorithms. Ming Zerpo's PhD was the first work to do this, and since then, the whole Empatica team has improved it enormously on it. Uh, and then, um, I think, as you mentioned at the start, we got FDA clearance uh, earlier this year, mm-hmm. finally, <laughs> for um, a machine learning AI system that runs on your wrist in the smartwatch. And uh, and it you know, continuously not only tries to monitor for generalized tonic-clonic seizures and send an alert, but as you said, and I love that you appreciate this because um, it's a lot of work, we're also continuously collecting the autonomic data and the movement data and the temperature data so that we can uh, learn from it and get a lot more health insights so that we can in the future hopefully do the forecasting and help people understand what might be triggering these events and hopefully help people prevent these seizures and also a lot of other related neurological events like migraines and and even depression. At the... uh Connected Health Conference that that we we just uh, had to, uh, we had you and I had the pleasure of sharing the stage. We, we were on a panel that uh, was looking at uh, solutions needed to address the promise, as well as the complexities of the the Internet of Things in healthcare. And I wondered, 
uh, as I have a personal fascination with the movement of IoT and sensors from giving uh, feedback loops that are based on a number like number of steps uh, to products like the Embrace uh, that are giving people insights into their health. I wondered if you could talk about how you see that unfolding and if you see other examples in the marketplace that you think are interesting in that regard, or even is it a trend, and I've got it wrong, that it's, uh, that it's not. I, I seem to see that as a promising trend, but I wondered what your thoughts were. Yeah, I think it varies a lot with individuals, whether they get a lot of insight out of that. You know, at first it's kind of cool and gimmicky to see your steps, your heart rate, your sleep. And I think some of those do make a difference, right? People learn how to get more physical activity. They get a sense of if they're getting, you know, 3,000 steps or 15,000 steps. or uh, And hopefully, and I know some people do make improvements to their lifestyle. I know other people put the sensor on their kid playing soccer and try to make it look like they're more active than they are <laughs> or stick it on one of the machines we have in the lab that moves back and forth. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of ways that people don't use these and that are, you know, not helping, but they, I, I think we've been studying and doing a lot of work also on health behavior change and it's hard. It's hard to get people to make new habits. Uh, and one of the things that seems to influence people a lot, well, there's several things. Um, one of them is your social support. And I know a lot of people do social gaming and stuff around this, and that can help too. Uh, but another thing is just your feelings. <laughs> you know, when you feel good about yourself, you want to work out, you want to eat right, you want to take care of yourself. When you have a really bad day, when you feel crappy, you know, that's when you, I don't know, people go for the cookies, the ice cream, the alcohol, the whatever. Um, and they, you know, tend to not uh, engage in the healthiest choices at those moments. We are working on measuring not only these momentary steps and heart rate and single numbers, but we are getting continuous data 24-7 uh, over long periods of time from the smartwatch, from the phone, you know, looking at, especially for young people, their social interaction through the phone, maybe less so for the years in my generation, but absolutely college age and, and thereabouts. Uh, we get a sense of many things in their life that help us see if they are doing well mentally and emotionally and uh, acting very resilient, or if they are in a state where they are super high stress, um, their mood is bad, their mood is dropping, their stress is going up, their physical health is going down, and they're on a trend there, which to me says, you know, hey, you are setting yourself up for potential depression if you don't make some changes. This chronic stress, this chronic bad mood uh, is not a good trend. And we are, um, by giving people these trends, these different insights, and using the machine learning and AI to mine what they've been doing beforehand and which things help them improve their mood and stress and which things in their life make it worse. We hope that we can give people more actionable, personalized recommendations that aren't just the usual, you know, walk 10,000 steps, sleep seven to eight hours, uh, but things that may today make a difference for you tomorrow. Yeah, more customized, more personalized. 
Yeah, yeah. And a bit more believable, too. <laughs> and, and more like a personalized forecast. You know, yeah. here in Boston, the weather changes like crazy, right? It's sunny out, and then they tell you there's going to be 10 inches of snow tomorrow. And you're like, oh, no way. Um, but they've learned, you know, from years of modeling the complexities in the system that they can actually uh, not just see what's happening nearby, but forecast what's likely to happen here. And we're starting to do the same with the continuous data that we're collecting. Uh, we're starting to be able to forecast your mood and your stress and your health tomorrow. And it's uh, already, you know, 78 to 84 percent accurate in nice. a group of college students. Well, that's a that's definitely a glimpse into the future. Uh, I uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I, I really appreciate your spending your time telling uh, uh, these stories. Our listeners will be inspired. Uh, before we close up, anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask, or anything you think I missed? Hmm. Um, no, I think I think this is great. You've uh, you've hit the highlights here. All right. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll. Uh, I'm sure we'll bump into each other on the uh, on the lecture circuit, and uh, again, continue to admire the work that you're doing. And thanks for spending the time with us. Thanks, Joe. What a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavita. A special thanks from me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager, for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash connected health, all one word. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Connected Health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.